But it makes us happy because you're strong and healthy and you're growing as you should be. So it, it makes us both happy and sad. He looks at me and says, nah, Daddy, that's weird. Can't make you both happy and sad. That's just silly. And so we agreed to disagree. And, um, but if you have kids, you, you know what I mean, right? It, it's, it does. It makes you happy and sad. Somebody vindicate me this morning in front of my three-year-old. Like, can I get a witness? Somebody that, uh, that can agree with me that uh, it's, it's a strange thing to see your kids grow up. And those growing pains, right, of, of, of we're happy to see them growing and healthy, but they're not our little baby anymore. And the same thing, the, the seasons that, that we go through, they mean that we're going to have to go through adjustments. And, and things are going to be exciting, but things are changing, and, and they bring issues. They bring uncomfortable situations, new perspectives uh, that we're learning about almost daily, it feels like, in our home. And that's what we see going on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6 this morning. We also see it going on at Poplar Spring Baptist Church. Um, in the six years that I've been here at Poplar Spring, we've seen this happen in numerous ways on numerous occasions. Uh, God has taken what has historically been a, a small country church that 20 years ago most of the members would have been lifetime bun residents, uh, probably related in some way. And God has grown this church to include a bunch of new people from all over the place that have no ties to this community other than the fact that we live here right now. Um, and, and I'm one of those in that category. I'm, I'm not a, a bunite uh, originally. I'm a, I'm a, a transplant. And, uh, and so to get, get a visual of that, even this morning, and we're, we're a little bit down numerically this, this morning with folks traveling out of town, but if you could help me out this morning, I think this would be helpful for us to see uh, so let, let's take a little bit of a test this morning. And you don't have to worry. There's, there's no grades. You automatically get an A. So I know you hear the word test, and, and some people's heart hit the floor. I'm not going to ask you to speak or anything like that. But if you would, raise your hand. I think it would help us to see that we fit this category, uh, even with those of us in this room. And I know you can't see the overflow room, but they'll participate too. Um, raise your hand for me this morning if you've been a member of Poplar Spring less than six years. That's a lot of us. That's a lot of us. Raise your hand this morning if you've been in this community less than 10 years. I would dare say that's most of us. Uh, raise your hand this morning if you have uh, zero biological relatives in this church other than your household, your immediate family. That's by far most of us. I think it's eye-opening. I think it's revealing to us. That's, that's helpful. It illustrates to us that we're growing, growing through some growing pains at Poplar Spring as well, similar to the ones they were facing in the, in the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Um, and so if that's the case, if, if we're growing and, and changing almost weekly and monthly, how do we walk through that growth with biblical faithfulness? What does it look like for us to grow and to change and remain true to what God's called us to be uh, faithful in. I mentioned numerous times that the gospel is advancing in the book of Acts. As we're studying through chapter by chapter, the gospel is going forth in, in incredible uh, leaps and bounds, and the devil didn't like it. He didn't like it in any way, and so he, destries, he tries to destroy the work of God in numerous ways. We've seen that in the last few weeks in our text together. The, the first way you see in the, in the book of Acts is by outside opposition, as religious leaders threatened Peter and John. And, uh, and, and tried to, to oppose the church in that way. Second, there was a wave of, of, of inside opposition as Ananias and Sapphira sowed disunity through greed, through lying. Certainly Satan was at work there. And then last week we saw another wave of outside opposition. But this time it was more ramped up, right? It was against all of the apostles. And they were actually arrested and, and beaten this time. And so you see a pattern, right? Outside opposition, inside opposition. 
outside opposition. And if you had to guess, what would you think is coming this week? Inside opposition. That, that Satan is, is, is loving any opportunity he has to get a foothold in what God's doing in the church and through gospel ministry. And it's just to say it another way, the devil has failed at, 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 at persecution. He's, he's failed at, um, at disunity. And so this week, he will try another, another tactic to destroy the church, which is distraction. He'll try to, to deter them through distraction. If he can preoccupy the apostles with administrative duties, which are important, but not their primary calling, then they would neglect their God-given responsibilities of preaching, praying, which would leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. And so that's exactly what we see Satan trying to do. He's failed at persecution. He's failed at corruption. And so he'll try distraction. In Acts chapter 6, Luke describes the, the blessings and challenges of a growing church. It's clear to us even in the first verse. The good news is the church is growing. We heard the text read for us. The bad news is people are complaining. And, uh, and thankfully Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes for us how these problems and blessings can be handled, how they should be handled. So three points this morning. Uh, our first one is this, that the church is growing, or if the church is growing because of the gospel, it's a good thing. If the church is growing because of the gospel, it's a good thing. We see it in the first part of verse 1 and the bookend, which is verse 7 for us this morning. Let's read together again. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, skip down to verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now the phrase church growth can evoke drastically different responses from different people, a whole spectrum of, of responses. I myself have had different knee-jerk reactions to that terminology over the years. Um, some find it easy to celebrate and to talk about church growth because that's what we should be aiming for, right? Uh, people coming to know the Lord, believing upon Christ, the good news of the gospel. And when that happens, the church grows. Yet others hear that language, church growth, and, uh, and it has with it negative connotations. Because many churches, many church leaders, many pastors become obsessed with it. It becomes an idol in their hearts and in their lives and in the life of the church. I once heard a lead pastor say to a student minister, if you don't have X number of baptisms in the student ministry next year, we're going to have, a ha- going to, have to have a conversation and reconsider your employment at this church. Giving quotas for baptisms, for numerical growth is unbiblical and it's ungodly. And for reasons like that, some people hear church growth and they immediately want to run the other way. And I get it. I get that response. But this passage helps us to understand growth in the church sensibly, as we should expect it when the gospel is being preached. We must note here that the church in, in Acts is experiencing their growth because of the gospel. It became a, a result of passionate gospel preaching and compassionate gospel ministry. They're loving their neighbors such that they would even sell their possessions so that they can love their neighbors. The word of God's being preached faithfully and continually. There's no gimmicks behind what they're doing in Acts. They're not giving out uh, video game systems to attract a crowd. They're not preaching a fluffy message about believing in yourself or, or uh, watering down the word to be politically correct. And the result was that the Lord blessed them. And they had a multitude of converts. This reminds us today, church, that the, the truth is the same today. Even today, we can attract a crowd with a variety of ways we see churches doing it all the time, but the church is built only through people embracing the gospel. 
It's, it's been that way since Acts. The gospel's preached, people believe, and the Lord grows his church. Another thing we must note here is people afraid of that language, church growth, and talking about the growth of the church often complain, hey, you guys are just about the numbers. I've heard that before. I've probably even said that before. You guys are just all about the numbers. Yet it doesn't appear to us in the text that Luke has that same fear, right? He sees new faces in the, in the congregation, and it doesn't evoke that same caution for him about being just of the numbers. In fact, Luke brackets these verses off with verse 1, which I just read for you, increasing in numbers, he says. And then verse 7, he says again, they greatly increased in number. He's, he's giving us, even in these seven verses, some brackets about numbers, is Luke all about the numbers? Is, is, that the, is that the charge we would level against him? Well, no. Dr. Luke is counting people because people count. They matter to God and they should matter to us. And we should long to reach more and more people if we believe that the gospel is actually able to save. And if it's the power of God unto salvation, then why would we not want more and more people to hear it and believe? And so if you're there... <laughs> If, you kinda, if your knee-jerk reaction is to spurn any talk of growth and numbers, let me offer this thought to you. What good parent, right? This is a, a quote from, from Pastor Mark Driscoll from back in the day. What good parent would say, we're going on a trip, a week-long vacation, but we're not going to count our kids before we get on the airplane or after we leave the airport or before we get to the theme park or after we leave the theme park because we don't want to be all about the numbers. We would look at that parent and say, you're crazy. <laughs> That's just irresponsible. You need to know where your kids are. The same thing's going on here in Acts. Luke mentions it numerous times because it's important that they know who is among them. And Luke clearly sees this expectation, this expansion of the church as a good thing. And by Acts 6, there would have been as many as 20,000 people within the body of Christ, within the church in Jerusalem. What an incredible move of God. What an incredible move of God. And we rejoice that it happened then because we're recipients of it today. And would we rejoice, though, if God did it right here in our community? Would we desire that same thing to happen, thousands saved from the wrath of God? What a blessing it would be for us to hear, hey, we we don't have any more room in our first service or second service or overflow rooms because of all the people that are giving their lives to Jesus. And the same thing's true at Pilate. Pilate has no more room in their congregation, in their service, because so many people have given their lives to Jesus. And Pine Ridge and and, and Pierce's, they're they're having the same thing. They, They can't fit the people in the room that God is saving what a thing to rejoice in and hope in that God would do a work like that among us. So to sum up our first thought here, first point, not all growth is good. We don't want numbers for the sake of numbers. But if it comes as a result of gospel transformation, it should be celebrated. It should be lifted up and, and praise the Lord that he's saving folks. Second thought or second point that we see here in the text, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. When the church is growing, we can expect problems to arise. When the church is growing, we can expect problems to arise. There's a, a temptation for us as we study through the book of Acts for us to idealize or romanticize the church in Acts. Statements like, if we could just get back to doing it like the first century church, then everything would be great. And that's problematic because it implies that the first century church was perfect. It wasn't. Is the first century church a model for us? Sure. Was it a perfect church? No. Did they do a lot of, of, of great things and have a lot of great success under the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. But did they also have failure? Yes. And we see one of those examples right here in Acts chapter 6. The people were failing to care for the needs of widows. And that's a problem. The Bible considers that a huge deal. 
You read First Timothy, I mean James chapter 1, verse 27, or our study through the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, where we saw this numerous times to care for the widow, the alien, the stranger, the orphan. So while we don't make excuses for the Acts church, it was a failure, and we'll call it that, we can at least find encouragement in their mistake. It reminds us, even this morning, that really good churches fail. It's going to happen. If it happened to this church, it will for us. And think about it. If, if this church, if the Acts church, the church in Jerusalem can fail, then certainly we can too. Think about this church, right? These 12 men, these leaders, these apostles were leading this church based on actual face-to-face conversations that they had with Jesus himself. They were, uh, they were leaders so in tune with God's spirit that Peter's shadow was able to convey Christ's healing power. And further, these men could never be charged with not preaching enough Bible. Some of these men actually wrote the Bible. And so if this church, even still, if this church can have oversights and miss something, they can have blind spots, if they're not the perfect church, then certainly we're not either Poplar Spring. And a little bit of humility as it concerns that goes a long way. We're about to note about five things, five specific threats that this church faced in this passage. But before we do, we need to note that failure is not always a sin as a result of sin. Sometimes failure is simply due to human limitation. Did the apostles not care about widows? Well, certainly not. They loved their widows. And they did as much as they were able. But these men were human. And they were few. And so let's see their struggles. Let's ask the Lord to teach us. As a result of them. So I have five for us in this second point. Now, the first is this, the threat of disunity. The threat of disunity. Look at verse 1. It says, Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let me remind you of the scene that's going on here in Acts. Uh, in case you haven't been with us through this study, there's an incredible generosity taking place in Acts, such that in chapter, uh, chapters previous, we've seen the rich selling their possessions so that they can uh, give the proceeds to the apostles and they could be used to care. Those monies could be used to care for the poor and the needy. One part of that group of poor in this culture would have been widows that needed to be cared for, needed to be provided for. And, uh, and so they were using these proceeds to do that, to care for widows in the church so that they could have food. That's that daily distribution that it's talking about. That's a great thing. That's a fantastic thing. But a problem arose. Even in doing a good thing, a problem arose. The Greek-speaking widows were receiving less than the Hebrew-speaking widows. And so there's this injustice. Accidental or intentional, it doesn't matter. There's an injustice here. There's a problem. But the bigger problem in this whole thing is the sinful response to the injustice. Watch this. Watch it in the text. They, they had a legitimate concern. They were being overlooked in the distribution of food. That's a problem. And being neglected there was a problem, but they handled it in the wrong way, and it led to disunity. Uh, the Greek speakers started complaining, verse 1. Now, Paul has much to say about complaining. Go 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul gives us warnings about grumbling and complaining. But in addition to their complaining, they were clearly complaining against the uh, Hebrew-speaking believers. There's a spiritual principle for us here, church. That the fastest way to cause disunity and division in the church is to grumble and complain about someone in the body of Christ. Even when you have a genuine concern, a legitimate concern. When you handle those concerns in any way other than the way that the Bible commands us, you're setting up the church for disunity. 
for division. The Bible gives us the process. Texts like Matthew chapter 18 are there because they show us how we handle these grievances, these concerns, these problems inside the body of Christ. They show us the process for these grievances with a brother or sister. I'm going to listen, listen to this. I'm going to read for you Matthew 18 and listen to this process. There's sort of three steps here. This is Jesus speaking to us from Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Praise the Lord. That's where it ends, right there, because he listened to you. Listen to the second part. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, here's the third part, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, as an unbeliever. So if you're handling your concerns, your faults, your grievances with a brother or sister in any way outside of that three-step pattern, then you are wrong, friend. It doesn't matter how sincere or how genuine you may be or how heartbroken you may be. And, and we, we camouflage this with piety, right? Brother or sister, I have to share this with you because my heart is so broken and burdened. Did you hear what so-and-so? Stop right there. Stop. You're sinning. You're spreading disunity. I need to share a prayer request with you. This has been on my heart. It's been so heavy. Did you hear that so-and-so? Stop. If you've not been to that brother or sister first, you are sinning against your brother. Go to them. Matthew 18. Go to them and stop spreading disunity. You're actually sinning against your brother or sister by doing that. But further than that, you're pouring gasoline on the church body and inviting Satan to come and bring his matches with him. It's setting up a culture a petri dish for disunity, a warm and fertile environment where disunity and division can grow. Will it be easy handling things biblically and going to a sister or a brother with whom you have a fault? No, it's not easy. Will it be awkward? Sure, it'll be awkward. But is it worth it? Absolutely. Because it's the way that God's given us, in his word, the process for handling these sorts of grievances. Not to complain or grumble about or against one another, but to go to them. And this sort of disunity ultimately brings shame to the name of Christ when we grumble against one another. Second threat here that we see in the text. Second threat here that we see in the text is the threat of legitimate needs going unmet. Legitimate needs going unmet. What we see in verses 1 and 7 is an incredible numerical increase in the church in Jerusalem. In other words, it's growing in leaps and bounds with people. Now it's hard to imagine with that kind of increase that it didn't come with some enormous needs, right? Can you even imagine simply trying to catalog and and list out the needs of 20,000 people, right? With various widows and poor and the broken, the ones that are being cared for. In the very early days of the Jerusalem church, it was probably a lot easier, right? You can imagine if there were 10 or 20 widows to care for in the church, this is a lot easier task. Peter's probably like, hey, I'll swing by Esther's house and see if she needs anything. And John's like, well, I'm going to pick up groceries today for my family. I'll just stop by Ruth's house and see if she needs anything while I'm out, and I'll just bring it back by her house. It was just easier, right? These 12 apostles could take tabs and, and, and be handling this thing together. There's simply no way that once the church begins to grow, it's certainly by the time you get to Acts chapter 6 and there's 20,000 people, that these 12 men could care for this kind of a body and, and be on top of it in the way that they should be. There's no way that these 12 apostles could keep up with everything, especially since they didn't have Microsoft Excel. 
Amen, David? David loves him some, uh, some Microsoft Excel. They couldn't do it. They, just simply the, the logistics of keeping tabs on everything would have been impossible. And so as they grew, legitimate needs, that's what we see here is a legitimate need, had to be figured out. How do we best handle this? How do we best care for these legitimate needs? And the same is true for us, Poplar Spring. As the Lord continues to save folks and grow the church, we'll have needs that arise that were not a need 10 years ago. And the question is, will we, by the Spirit of God, be led to meet those needs and to care for those folks in a way that honors the Lord? Problems that we didn't even know existed 10 years ago are going to be an issue for us as the Lord continues to save folks out of the world that's very different than it was 10 years ago. Will we adapt? Will we care for our brothers and sisters that are hurting and are, and are steep in sins that we didn't even know were a problem a few years ago? Legitimate needs needed to be met. And the threat would be that they would just overlook them so that we could keep things the way it's always been. Third threat here in the text, you see it in verse 2, is the threat of overburdened leadership. The threat of overburdened leadership. Look at verse 2 again with me. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now in verse 2, the apostles are, are going before these other disciples and essentially saying this, We can't do it all. <laughs> it's just impossible. There's not enough hours in the day. We literally can't take care of all of this. And we see that there are legitimate needs. There are genuinely things that need to be taken care of. Uh, but to do that, we would have to give up our primary calling, which is to preach the word. And we're unwilling to make that compromise. We can't do that. We can't sacrifice the preaching of the word to, to do this, though this needs to be done. And I'm so thankful that here at Poplar Spring, we have some things in place so as to help with this legitimate threat. This is a threat for any church, that we would be so about some things that we would, we would miss other things our primary callings. And so at Poplar Spring, we have a plurality of elders. That word elder, pastor, is used interchangeably in the New Testament. They mean the same thing. Your elders are your pastors. Your pastors are your elders. And they're men that have been called by the Holy Spirit, that have been affirmed by this church body through a vote, for the purpose of shepherding souls, leading families, caring for the spiritual well-being of families, and guarding the right doctrine of the church through preaching and teaching the word. That's what your elders do. That's their primary responsibility. Thankful for that. I'm thankful for that because I'm not doing this task alone. There are a lot of churches in our community and around the country that they have one pastor and they have overburdened leadership. We also have biblical deacons. What we see even in this text is a prototype for the deacon, the office of deacon that will come through some of Paul's writings. And what we see with the deacons is that they're not a, a board of, of rulers to rule the church, they're servants. You see it even in this text. They carry out material and physical tasks in the church that care for the well-being, the physical well-being of the, of the church family. I'm thankful at Poplar Spring that we see those two offices outlined in Scripture and that our documents, our bylaws, hold those two offices up, elders and deacons. We also have a congregation of ministers. You might not even know that until right now. And that if you've been called to follow Jesus and you've surrendered your life to Jesus, then you've surrendered to the work of ministry. Each and every one of us. Did you know that? Ephesians 4.12, when you trusted Jesus for salvation, you surrendered to the call of ministry. And you may say, whoa, Matt, that sounds like something that pastors do, right? Surrendering to the call of ministry, but that's exactly what each of us do when we trust Jesus for salvation. We give him a blank check with our life on it, and we say, Jesus, you spend this how you want. You've given me gifts, you've given me talent, you've given me time, and God, I want to leverage them for you. And so for the ministry of this church and this community, God, you spend my check however you want it. We've all been called to ministry. And so here's the thing, though, church. The legitimate threat of overburdened leadership becomes an issue when any number of those safeguards are not operating properly. 
right? We see this in churches all over the place, that elders want to rule, but they don't want to shepherd and serve. Or deacons want to be a, a body that functions as like the guard, but they don't want to meet physical needs, or at least not committed to it. Or church members, a congregation of ministers that never move from faithful attender to faithful servant, committed servant. Listen, church membership says this is where I serve, not this is where I listen to sermons. And when we mix that up, when we flip that on its head, then we have the threat of overburdened leadership. Ministry sign-up forms are available right now. You can get them here or in the, the vestibule. We have a ministry fair going on today as soon as we have our benediction for this service. And both of those things are available to you so that you can pray, God, how would you have me spend my my year this year, the church year? How would you have me serve this body, serve in this body and in this community? That's what we give you those ministry sign-up forms for. That's why we've done a ministry fair today so that we can ask those questions. God, help me to use my gifts for this church family and for this community this year. And so I pray you'll do that. Fourth threat that we see here in the text comes in verse 3. It's the threat of seeing all change as bad, all change as bad. Look at verse 3. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. What we see in verse 3 is a change. It's a transition that's happening in the the, the very early. The church hasn't even been there that long, and they're already changing things up. Uh, But it's a transition concerning the ministry of the apostles. They would no longer be the ones doing this distribution of food personally. Sure, they'd know about it, but they wouldn't be the ones physically doing it. These seven men of good repute would be doing that. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that everyone was thrilled about this change? I mean, you've got 20,000 people. Surely someone's going to have a different opinion about it. Someone's going to not like this new system, this transition, this change. Right? You can even imagine maybe one of the widows walking up to answer the knock at her door, and she gets there and... Well, who are you? <laughs> I'm Nicanor. Who? Nicanor. I'm your new deacon. Where's Peter? <laughs> I wanted Peter to come by because uh, I wasn't feeling too good today, and his shadow seems to make me feel better. So where's he at? I wanted him to come to my house. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help. You can imagine, right, those kind of conversations. I'm sure there was a temptation to be critical of this new plan, of this change that was coming, this transition. There's a principle for us here as well, church, that Jesus... And gives us a church body, a family, and as we grow, things naturally change. Things are going to be different. And just because they're different or new doesn't mean that they're bad or wrong. They're just different. And maybe they work and we continue to do them that way, or maybe they don't work and we go back to the way it was. And the point is that when we're ministering and serving together, being led by the Spirit of God together, if change comes, we go with it. And we trust the Lord to work in it. That's what's going on here. And so there's a temptation for us, though, to see any change as bad. And that's certainly not the case. Certainly wasn't for the Acts church here in Acts chapter 6. Number five, our last one, the threat of blurring ministry priorities. Look at verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, the threat of blurring ministry priorities. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus of Proselyte, um, of Antioch. And they sat before the apostles, and then they prayed and laid their hands on them. In these verses, we see a, a clear distinction in the roles that these two groups would perform. In verse 4, we, it says, the apostles, will remain devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then in verses 5 and 6, seven men are selected that will see to the physical, the practical needs of the congregation. 
Uh, it's not setting up for us a hierarchy. I think we could be tempted to think of it in that way. Even in the local church today, that like the elders are the varsity and the deacons are sort of like the junior varsity and there's this hierarchy of leadership, but that's not the case. It's not a distinction of importance. It's a distinction of function, what they do, not how vital they are. Both are vital. And this is a reminder to us that God's called us to perform different roles and different functions, and both are biblical and both are needed in the local church. Now, so seeing those two functions, let's observe more closely what they're doing. Notice, though, the text doesn't call these elders and deacons. Now, we're certainly able to draw some, some application and some conclusions here that seeing some sort of prototypes, these are what's happening here, the, the, the offices are forming, apostles are shepherding, the seven were deaconing in the text, but the text in Acts doesn't use that language like Paul will later. Paul in his letters will use that, the office of deacon, the office of elder pastor. Um, that's not happening yet in Acts. The church is still really new. But I think there are some observations we can make, at least in application of how they're dividing up these functions. First thing we see is that prayer is the heart of ministry. You see that first and foremost. Everything here begins and ends with prayer. Yet, for us, it's often the first thing that we sacrifice. It's the easiest thing to give up in our personal lives and in our ministries. To just forget it or to just give it a nod or, uh, yeah, we should probably do this because we should probably do this. Um, sort of mentality with it. Ministry flows from one's communion with God. It's an overflow of your heart spent before the Lord. And these apostles would not neglect that which gives life to ministry or to them in their soul, in their heart. And that's communion with God. And we shouldn't either. And prayer is the heart of, of ministry, any sort of ministry. Notice the second observation here. Preaching, preaching the gospel separates us from all other groups, organizations, or religions. The apostles realized that if they don't preach the gospel, there would soon be no church, right? That's the only thing that God is, 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 is founding the church upon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so giving people food, that's a great idea. It's actually a biblical idea. But without preaching the word of God, there's no church. And soon it'll dwindle up and it'll be no more. Spiritual malnourishment was too high a price to pay for physical nourishment. They would not give up one for the other. And food pantries, homeless shelters, refugee ministries, all great things, all things that the body of Christ should be doing and supporting, but what gives the church its identity is the preaching of the gospel. Now, hear me closely. I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy here saying that it's an either-or, right? There's a temptation that we could hear that. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I'm saying it should be a both-and, that grasping the gospel should compel us to work for justice and the care of our neighbors, but the inverse is not true. There, there's plenty of folks that are doing humanitarian service projects that don't have a clue about the gospel. But as those that have been captured by the gospel, we've been, been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel as we serve our neighbor, as we love our neighbor. Our love for our neighbor, our care for our neighbor should never cause us to minimize the proclamation of the gospel. And so after setting forth these priorities of prayer and preaching, they selected seven men that met the physical needs of the church. In this case, in their case, widows. There's a couple of things I think we note here. When they chose these leaders, the qualifications were simple and they were clear. Men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. You see that in verse 3. They didn't go to the latest business magazine or, or get out their personnel profiles. Well, we want a 26 to 29-year-old, and we want him to have these kind of features. He should be probably around six foot tall because that kind of looks like a leader. That stuff is silly. And, but hear me, it's happening in some of the churches around our country. 
That's not what they did. They wanted a man full of the Spirit. They wanted a man who had a good reputation among his peers around the community. The qualifications were, were, were just simply that. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Here's the second thing we note here. The qualifications nor the tasks were confined to deacons, right? I think we sometimes can accidentally go there. It's not that other people were not filled with the Spirit and have wisdom. It's just that these seven men had to, right? All of us should be filled with the Spirit and have wisdom. It's just that these men were required to be. It's also not that other people couldn't serve widows and meet physical needs. Certainly all of us should do that, and all of them in the first church should have been doing that. It's just that these men were tasked with that, right? So I think often we, 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 we overlook that in these qualifications. Well, these men have to be this way, but the rest of us get a pass on some of these. No, we should all be being filled with the Spirit and, and exemplifying these characteristics. Uh, notice also that, uh, that, that deacons have different physical needs, meet dis- different physical needs based on the churches that they're serving in, right? And that may look, look different in, in 100 different churches uh, because the needs are different in those churches. But minimally, I think lowest common denominator here that we see in the text that we could apply for our lives here at Poplar Spring is that all deacons at every church should provide an example to all church members of what it looks like to be a faithful church member and to serve faithfully in the body, right? That should be characteristic of our, of our deacons, that they're peacemakers, that they're ministry motivators, they're, they're practical mobilizers. Hey, you want to know what it looks like to serve? Watch this guy. He does it well. And I think that would be characteristic of our deacons and should continue to be. Well, third point that we see in the text, and it's where we'll end today. It's a bit shorter. When the church is growing and problems arise, it's an opportunity for us to put spirit-given love on display. I'll say that again. I know it's a mouthful. When the church is growing and problems arise, it's an opportunity for us to put spirit-given love on display. Don't miss in the text that we just walked through the overall spirit of love that permeates this text. Even when there's potential for division, right? And that that was happening. Complaints against one another. That was a, a real potential. The result of these verses, what what comes out of these events, was love and unity. To make changes here within a church family, and in this case, 20,000, that's a big church family, but any church family, to make changes requires grace and a spirit of love. You know what we don't see in Acts chapter 6? It's a big church fight. (laughs) A bunch of folks mad at one another and splitting ways over stuff. We don't see that. Instead, there's a spirit of love and humility and unity And believe me, churches have certainly split over less important issues than how you care for your widows. That's a big one. Instead, we see a gathering in which the word of God leads this group to love God and one another. And the truth of God's word, that the wisdom that comes through this, the discernment comes through this, it soothes the disagreement. Spirit-filled unity is something encouraging to see and should be desired among us. As we wrap up, this kind of love that we see in in Acts chapter 6 is exemplified most of all and most clearly by Christ himself, right? You think John 13, 35, that by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, right? What better time to show love for one another than in times of growth, in times of change, in growing pains that are going to come in any church? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, Right? And we see that Jesus most clearly shows us that perfect love on Calvary that he did. He he wasn't just willing to, but he actually did lay down his life for us. He laid down his life so that he could carry our sins to the grave, right? 
that he would take in himself the wrath of God that we were all justly under. He would take it in himself to remove the wrath of God that was over us. So if Jesus shows us perfect love by laying down his life for us, shouldn't we imitate Jesus in loving our brothers and sisters and being willing to lay down personal preference, personal conviction, traditions for the sake of one another? Our differences are are there. We have them. And sometimes they're serious. I think the Spirit of God would call us to defer to one another, to commit to unity and love above our preference. We certainly see that exemplified most perfectly in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. That God, it's not just an ancient book with ancient words that have no meaning or that are devoid of power. But God, your word is true and it can be trusted and it is sufficient for us. In every season, in every generation, in every church that's ever existed, your word is our authority. And so, God, as we come to your word today, help us to have soft hearts. That, God, the the word of God would land as you, Spirit, are applying it to our hearts. That we would be aware of threats that could come into this body. That we would be aware that as you grow this body, things change and there's a potential for disunity or division. But, God, by your Spirit, you know that's, we know that that's not your plan for us. That you would have us love one another as you've loved us. And that would be a testimony and a witness to the lost world around us. And so, God, we need your your spirit. We need your power to do that. We can hear it all day long. But until, Spirit, you work in our hearts to help us to apply it and live it, it'll be nothing but words. So, God, take your word and by the power of your spirit, help us to live it out. God, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't know you, they've never trusted you, that today would be a day of salvation. They would come to understand this love that's been poured out for them on Calvary and give their life to King Jesus. Father, as we come to your table, God, would you use communion today as a, as, a, as, as a remembrance of what you've done for us, but also as a unifier, that we're a body under the bloodshed of Christ. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. As we respond this morning. One of the ways that act, the church in Acts worship the Lord is through communion, and we get to do that again today. It's a really incredible thing if you think about it, that we're doing something today that the church was doing 2,000 years ago. Um, it's a fascinating thought. The, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation that we're in fellowship with, first and foremost, God through the blood of Christ, but also with one another through Christ. And so as you partake today, that's what you're saying to everyone in the room. I've trusted Christ for salvation, and I, I love this body or a similar body and I'm a part of it. I'm in fellowship with the body. The Lord's Supper is also a commemoration of, of Christ's death. So as you partake today, you're saying that you fully acknowledge that you've been offered mercy through faith in Christ. You've received, you've been restored and forgiven. That's why we ask kids not to partake. If, if they're unbaptized children, it's not that we don't like kids. It's that they've never made that profession. They've never trusted Jesus and told the world that through baptism. The Lord's Supper is also a renewal of the believer's commitment to Christ. And to his people. So therefore, as as we come to this table, God is also doing something. He's working in our presence. He's working in our midst. He's forming us into one body that's separate from the world, distinct from the world. He's also knitting us together in deeper fellowship and unity. He's also affirming, reminding us, this is what I did for you. And in that, he's, he's affirming our salvation. He's giving us confidence in his grace, the seal of the spirit that he's given us.
So participation in the Lord's Supper is designed for believers who have been baptized and who are in good fellowship with Poplar Spring or another church of like faith and practice. And so this morning, if you're not yet a believer, you've never trusted Christ for salvation, we ask you to sit this one out. And we pray, our prayer is, as we do this, it would be a visual a picture for you of what Christ has done for you so that you would trust Christ for salvation, repent of your sins, and be baptized. And then next time we do this, you'll be doing it with us. The creek's getting real warm out there. It's a great time to do baptisms. We'd love it to be yours. And as we come to the table this morning, let's proclaim his death until he comes. So I'm going to read for us 1 Corinthians 11, starting verse 23, where we see this command from Christ to do what we're about to do. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim his death till he comes. I'm going to pray for us. And then you come. You can form two lines down the center aisle. And there will be two places where you can receive the elements and you can return back to your seats. If you need help, if you're unable physically to walk down, tap somebody beside you. I know they'd be help, willing to help you. And then there's also this time of response where we're going to be singing. So as you take communion, come and, and take as you're ready. But also pray. This time is a time to, re- to pray and reflect and ask the Spirit to work in our hearts, to convict us of sin, to change our hearts. And so you respond as the Lord leads today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body. That equality with God was not something to be grasped, but you came and and you died a criminal's death on a cruel cross. And that's our only way of salvation. And so we thank you this morning, Jesus, that you've called us to be your sons and daughters. While we were so unlovable and full of sin, you gave yourself for us. And we say thank you. And we worship you today, Jesus, around this table, remembering your broken body and your shed blood. I pray for every heart in this room that you would be drawing each heart to yourself even through this act, through this ordinance that, we've had, that we have that you've given us. So use this time, Jesus, to knit us together as a family, to create a supernatural unity among us, to remind us of what you've done for us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.